Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Pianci, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime, Mr. Bennett Tomlin. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Cass? I'm doing great. We're joined by a special guest, Leo Schwartz over at Fortune, is uh, joining us today. First of all, how are you, Leo? I'm doing so well. I feel like I'm fulfilling a lifelong dream, so <laughs> big honor to be here. I'm sorry if that's uh, in any way close to true. We're, and by we're... life, I mean, I guess the past few years. <laughs> right. I don't think you've been around for my entire life, but it feels like that. You did an article recently for Fortune entitled, Circle wanted to create a financial revolution. Instead, it's losing the stablecoin wars to Tether. Bennett and I were immediately interested in this article. Obviously, we have a fascination with... Uh, with Tether, I think everyone knows that. We we haven't talked about USDC and Circle that much, though, and I think this is a good opportunity for us to dive into a different stablecoin. Probably most people listening know what a stablecoin is, so I'm just going to give a basic definition, one-to-one pegged asset that is traded on a cryptocurrency market. So it, it could be one-to-one US dollars, one-to-one gold, ounces of gold, one-to-one you know, euros or British pounds, whatever. Um, but the idea one is... One-to-one pegged Apple tokens being traded on FTX. Yes, right. Whatever it may be, that's the idea of a stablecoin. Uh, there's obviously more than one USD-based stablecoin. USDC is this major alternative to Tether. Leo, I'd love to hear, why exactly are they losing the stablecoin wars? It's a great question. One that I go into this article. Uh, I would say what initially piqued my interest here is that I think there's an inclination in crypto media to always want to focus on the biggest fraudulent actors. Tether is obviously a recurring theme of interest among crypto reporters. But I think it's also worthwhile to look at the other companies, which are probably abiding by the rules, at least to some degree more. And I think Circle really falls under that description, where their whole thing in comparison to Tether is we want regulation, we're working with regulators, we're trying to play by whatever rules are out there. And that's how they try to win over customers. And for a while, it seemed like that was going to be really successful. Uh, they were founded in 2013 by this serial entrepreneur named Jeremy Allaire. Uh, in 2018, they launched USDC in partnership with Coinbase. They had the backing of groups like Goldman Sachs. They work hand in hand with other institutional firms and investors. Uh, and until last year, it really seemed like they were going to be able to compete against Tether, which is obviously this very unregulated company firm that really just turns its nose at any pretense of trying to abide by whatever rules are out there for crypto. So when you look at last year before March, um, Circle's other main competitor, which was BUSD, the Binance-backed stablecoin issued in partnership with Paxos, had been effectively kneecapped by regulators in New York. Circle was ascendant. It seemed like they could maybe even overtake Tether. Uh, and then the banking crisis happened in March, and it turned out that Circle had $3.3 billion of its reserves trapped up at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, that was, I think, 8% of its total reserves. Uh, obviously, the main function of stablecoin is to serve, is to stay stable. Uh, and with that in mind, the fact that all of its reserves were now in question, it set off a weekend of panic uh, where traders were trying to exit out of their position. Can I pause yeah. you and just ask, most people are probably familiar with FDIC insurance. If you're not, I think right now it goes up to about $250,000, unless you're a billionaire or multimillionaire, in which case you have free reign and you are fully covered forever. At least that seems to be the case. I'm wondering why, why did they have $3.3 billion at SVB? And um, considering that's such a serious risk factor, having so, so many US dollars at one bank, 
why wasn't there any sort of risk analysis on having this much money in essentially one account? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that that's remained a major question for people since that DPEG event. What Circle's party line is, is basically we need to have some portion of our reserves in cash as deposits in banks to basically be able to handle liquidity. As you're both aware, and I'm sure many of the readers or the listeners of this podcast are aware, it's very difficult for crypto companies to get banking access. And basically what Circle said is, you know, we were diversified. They were working with a number of banking partners. Uh, we thought we were as diversified as possible. Uh, obviously, they were not in, in the fact that they had 8% of the reserves at Silicon Valley Bank. I think they had $2 billion more in deposits than the next biggest non-Silicon Valley Bank depositor at the bank. Uh, they had and more, they had more other, than Silicon Valley yeah. Bank's own companies yes. had at Silicon Valley Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, which is just I like I, when I saw that you had put that in the article, I was like, what? Like, what is happening here? This is this is crazy. Yeah. And Paxos notably did not. So Paxos is this other stablecoin company, unlike Circle, and we can go into this later. They followed a path of regulation in which they're a trust company with the New York Department of Financial Services. Uh, and I think they've come out pretty harshly against Circle really over the past few years and basically said Circle's not regulated and they're not following the same sort of risk analysis we did. But I would say since that event, Circle has still maintained that they were doing everything that they could to play by the rules and you know they were following proper risk analysis. And really, the issue was with the banking system and not with them. If I remember correctly, I think two months before their DPEG, Circle disclosed that they had eight primary banking relationships that they were relying on. At that point, including um, Signature, Silvergate, I think uh, Customers Bank, Silicon Valley, along with several others. And over those several weeks leading up to the eventual collapse of Silicon Valley and that depegging, that number kept reduced as we got closer and closer to it as these banks failed or reduced crypto. And so one of the things that I thought was really interesting at that event was Dante Disparte of Circle said that them doing more to try to avoid this kind of situation would have been risk reduction to absurdity. And Paulo Arduino, the chief technical officer of Tether, their largest competitor, said that it was a basic mistake in risk management to do this. And that was like kind of a really interesting contrasting in frames between these two companies. And it was especially striking to me just considering Tether's historical tendency to put large amounts of customer deposits in shady companies and then lose tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of them without disclosure. I was struck wondering when I read it, if putting money in Silicon Valley Bank is a basic mistake in risk management, then what is putting money in Crypto Capital Corp? Question for me, Cass. <laughs> I... Anyone really? I, I think a, rhetor kind of, a rhetorical question. <laughs> it's largely a rhetorical question to kind of get at like Circle probably should have been more diversified. But the interesting kind of undercurrent to me is that Circle was more diversified, say three months before the depegging. Circle had significantly more banking relationships and then basically got reduced to this point where eventually it was kind of this single point of failure. And so it was interesting to me to see in these ongoing stablecoin wars over market cap and general use to watch Paolo come out and make that kind of statement about his competitor. For me, a, qu a question that, and, I, and I, I think I spoke to Bennett about this, they can't do a sweep account. Now, if, if anyone is unfamiliar with a sweep account, basically it's like if I'm an individual who's making millions of dollars every year, I can 
tell my my bank or some other third party like hey move anything over $250,000 to a different bank account so that I am FDIC insured across the board. And I understand when you're dealing with billions and billions of dollars, there isn't exactly a sweep account for that. But there are analogs to that as far as I am aware. And there are things you can do to mitigate the risk of having all of this money at one singular bank in one singular account. And I'm just curious, like, have they, are they doing that now? Have, have things changed since then? Is this something that like, was a one-time thing and they're, they no longer are keeping billions of dollars in a single bank account? Or is this something that is like impossible to avoid for a stable coin? Well, I will point again, I think Paxos is an interesting foil here. And they have come out pretty explicitly and said this, and I, I know other analysts have as well, which is that it did seem like there were risk mitigation strategies, including getting insurance on deposits that they could have followed. Since then, they've followed different paths. A lot of their cash now is with BNY Mellon, which is obviously uh, a GSIB. Uh, so it seems much less likely that BNY Mellon is going to fail than Silicon Valley Bank would. And I think if BNY Mellon fails, there's probably a lot bigger issues in the world than the stablecoin losing its peg. They also have this BlackRock fund. And I know people, some people I talked to said that that seemed like another good place to be able to have deposits uh, instead of having it so many in Silicon Valley Bank. So Again, I put this in the article. I think hindsight is twenty twenty. There's going to be people who said that because of the reality of banking crypto, maybe there wasn't a better way for them to hold that amount of money. Um, I know one analyst I spoke to, Stephen Kelly at Yale, who's a great analyst, a great commentator on these subjects, basically said, you know, what they were doing is they were following the tech playbook, which is this made the most sense if what you were trying to do was grow as quickly as possible. Here's a bank that seems stable that said we'll hold all this money for you. Why not jump at that opportunity? Uh, and it, it was a black swan event that it failed. Again, I, I think it's it's debatable to say whether it was as big a failure of risk management as obviously Paolo says, uh, or even Paxos. But clearly in this event, it, it really was a catastrophic event for Circle. One of the things you talked about there is kind of the difference in paths that uh, Paxos and Circle have taken over the different years as they've kind of competed here. And one of kind of the things that stuck out to me is that for a long time, Center was supposed to be doing kind of what Paxos does, where you partner with various companies, they are issuing a portion of the stablecoin done in a partnership. And eventually they moved away from that to the model where they're now just kind of Circle and Coinbase issuing it. And what I would love if you could kind of talk about kind of the history of Circle's structure and how that's changed over time and like what that reveals about their relationships with other entities. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is a history that's sort of been left by the wayside, but is pretty illustrative of the last five years of, of crypto, where basically, you know, going back to 2018, Circle had been around for five years uh, and they had a lot of different businesses before doing stable coins. They had an OTC desk which, by the way, Ryan Salem was one of the star traders for. Uh, they were trying to basically do a Venmo equivalent. None of it was really working. Jeremy always wanted to do a type of overall payment service, like you know, redoing the plumbing of how all of global payments work. And what he said is basically by 2018, thanks to Ethereum, it was possible to have the type of smart contract enabled stable coins that he'd always hoped for. And his initial vision for not necessarily USDC, but this entire stablecoin ecosystem was there was going to be this consortium that was called Center, lots of different crypto firms. Um, Bitmain, the mining company, was going to be one of the first partners there, would basically be part of the consortium, which would oversee governance, 
And then through that consortium, any of the partners could basically issue their own fiat-backed stablecoins. So not necessarily just US dollar banked, backed, but backed by the euro or the yen or any other number of currencies. And basically, all of this would be done under the guidance of Center uh, with a lot of different partner firms. What ended up happening was only one partner firm came on that was Coinbase. They only issued one stablecoin that was USDC. Uh, and you know, basically what I reported for this story is that the reason for that is I think USDC grew beyond any of their possible imaginations. It's soon become, if you look at either their balance sheets now, obviously for Circle, it's their entire revenue source. For Coinbase, it's something like 30% of their revenue source now. And I think the reality is they didn't really want to share the profits. And also they ran into a lot of regulatory issues where they realized it wouldn't be possible to start issuing this wide array of fiat backstable coins. So I just want to interject there because I think what you kind of got at there highlights kind of an interesting diversion between these two stablecoin firms. You mentioned in the article that 99% of Circle's revenue is coming from interest income. But then I think you also said that 95% of Paxos's revenue was coming from their branding partnership with Binance for BUSD, which is kind of closer to what Circle's original vision was. And so it was kind of interesting to me to see how the revenue source for those two firms diverged so much when USDC was so successful. I, I think both of those numbers, you know, if you follow the two companies, they might to some degree be common sense, but I still think they're pretty stunning where Circle's business has not only entirely become USDC, which everyone knows, but all of this revenue is coming from the fact that they're able to collect the yields created by interest rates on USDC. So they're not even making money from transaction services or any of the other products that they have that are built on top of USDC. It's basically entirely dependent on interest rates. And then when you look at Paxos, this is a company that had basically built their model as stablecoins as a service, where a company like PayPal will come in and say, we want a stablecoin, and they'll help build it for them. And all of their money was coming from Binance uh, and I think Pax, or PayPal now represents a, a lifeline for them. We mentioned that Paolo from Tether was quick to criticize uh, Circle and USDC. Makes sense. We've also kind of discussed why that's a funny thing for him to do, considering how many regulatory and other issues that and, and risk assessment issues that Tether has had in its nearly 10 years of existing. But what I want to talk about also is that you get this strong criticism from Paxos. And I look at Paxos and I go, the first thing I think about is Binance USD. If anyone wants to take a look at that chart and see something amazing, that is straight up and directly down because they were told like you have essentially you have to stop doing this, stop doing this immediately, right? So clearly Paxos, who seem to think they're really, I've seen some of the people from Paxos, you know, speak in front of Congress. And like th these guys are trying to take the reins on being the, the ones who are the, like, we know what regulation looks like. And yet what I'm seeing when I go to the Paxos website is a bunch of stable coins that have either failed or aren't doing anything and aren't being used for anything. So is this criticism fair from Paxos or are they are they criticizing them because they're a competitor and because they want to take advantage of this moment? I think it's a good illustration that there's basically cautionary tales and no matter what model you choose in the stablecoin game. You know, what Circle decided to do is basically they chose the route of only partnering with Coinbase, understanding that maybe Coinbase is, you know, the enemy that you know. Uh, I report a lot in the article that I think their relationship has been contentious to some degree just because there's so much money at stake. 
But for the most part, I think they understand what they're going to get with Coinbase. Coinbase is still not going to get up to the type of shenanigans that a partner like Binance would. In contrast, the model that Paxos chose was we're going to be completely regulated under the NYDFS model, but rather than just partner with one company, we're going to try and diversify and basically be able to create stablecoins as a service for all these different partners. And chasing revenue, they went with Binance. Uh, and obviously, the, the issue with Binance is Binance took this stablecoin that was regulated, and they created an array of unregulated peg stablecoins with the same branding. And that's ultimately what the regulator DFS didn't like, and that led to the nuking of that product. So I think in, in either case, I think you'll see pretty fair criticism. They're just going down different paths. Is Tether the path to success in stablecoins? <laughs> I, 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 like, it's Apparently. funny, but I'm, I'm ultimately asking this seriously, right? Like, these other stablecoins are simply failing. And, and your article points to this. I mean, this is the crux of the article is why is USDC losing if it is trying to get regulated and trying to do things by the book? And, and why is um, Paxos's stuff? I, I, I just checked the Pax dollar market cap. It's like $500 million. I mean, that is nothing in cryptocurrency. That is absolutely nothing. So the idea that they're going to be the ones who are dictating regulatory policy is almost laughable to me when you have an $85 billion stablecoin in Tether. Um, and that is just, I, like, those numbers are insane when you reflect on the difference between the two. And you have some really nice charts in your article as well, where you show, like, as USDC has disintegrated, Tether has gone nothing but up. Is this the success story for stablecoins for crypto? Is this is this the success story? I mean, definitely. I think one of the issues with both Paxos and Circle is they're chasing regulation. And I think Circle is really planning for a future in which there is a regulatory regime in the US that really fits their own model, which for them is basically being able to have an account directly with the Fed so that rather than having to put their money as deposits with banks, they can just hold their money directly with the Federal Reserve. Obviously, that seems incredibly unlikely to happen anytime in the next few years. Uh, and barring that, I think it is really difficult for them to compete with a company like Tether, which again says, we aren't going to even have the pretense of regulation. We're going to operate offshores. But what also that means is that we'll attract all of these crypto companies that don't want to have to touch anything close to the US government, which is the perception of how USDC operates, even though, again, it hasn't really followed this uh, regulatory path in terms of being a trust company with DFS or, uh, you know, being able to win over lawmakers to actually pass regulation in the U.S. That regulatory question, there was an interesting portion of your article, at least interesting to me, interesting to crypto historians <laughs> about uh, Poloniex. For those who don't know, Poloniex used to be a um, really important altcoin exchange, crypto-only exchange where you could trade a lot of tokens that you couldn't trade on more respected places. They even had like a chat box where you could talk to the other people who were trading whatever coin you were trading and make fun of them for their bad trades and stuff. Circle ended up buying Poloniex for $400 million. And what was interesting to me was you uh, linked out some previous coverage about a presentation that they gave discussing the plan with Poloniex. 
And their plan was to get around previous sanctions violations and other things like that by trying to become the most compliant cryptocurrency exchange. And in reading the slide, their broad plan was to basically become Prometheum, for those who know what that is. They intended to register one entity as a broker-dealer, another entity as an alternative trading system for securities, and they had gotten an informal indication from the SEC that the SEC would not pursue any enforcement activity against them for prior activity if they had come in and registered like this. And so there's even kind of in the course of this, this kind of impression that the SEC wanted Circle and Poloniex to be this example of the first non-compliant exchange that came in and became compliant. That ended up not working out and it was sold to Justin Sun for along with a couple of other investors, for less than half of what they paid for it. What was your impression when working through this on what Circle hoped was going to come from that investment? And the reason I ask this is because when I've discussed Prometheum and stuff before, the problem with registering in this way and becoming an ATS and a registered broker-dealer is that none of the tokens or cryptocurrencies that people want to trade are then things you're allowed to trade. Right. And so becoming an ATS and a broker dealer in most cases looks like a path towards an exchange with roughly zero revenue. Did you have any idea of what Circle saw that I was missing? The way that I situated that in in my coverage and what I heard from people, and it doesn't go as much into the regulatory question of what their ideal for Poloniex would have looked mm -hmm. like. But I think at that stage, Jeremy Allaire was really chasing Coinbase still. And Again, this was a time when they had Circle Pay, which was like the Venmo type competitor. They had an OTC desk that was very successful, but crypto is obviously still a business that's about trading cryptocurrencies on an exchange type platform. And I think that they just saw that one of the largest exchanges was available for purchase. And they thought, again, with Allaire's understanding that, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur, I can do this in a regulatory compliant way that he would be, be able to shoehorn this in. And I do think that presentation is a pretty fascinating time capsule of a different SEC, where it does seem like they were having productive conversations where basically the SEC said, if you stop breaking the law with Poloniex the way it was, but you bring it into compliance, again, not really understanding what that compliance would have looked like, this, this could work. And my understanding is the issue is they kept, Poloniex was still available to countries with sanctions in it. And I think that's where the issue came in and they had to pay fines on that. So obviously it didn't work out. But I, I think what this really was, was an error in judgment where Jeremy Allaire was trying to create this all-encompassing platform for Circle where it had this core exchange product, which is really necessary in the crypto world. And obviously with, within a year, it proved that it wasn't going to be able to pass regulatory muster. Tristan D'Agusta was the original creator of Poloniex Exchange. He sold it to them and then... I guess the, the suggestion here is that they couldn't get it into compliance, whatever that means, right? That's my understanding. I think what they say is basically, because that was in around 2018, which is when they were getting center and USDC off the ground. And what they say is they wanted to focus all resources on, on USDC at that point. Okay, so they couldn't get it into compliance or they weren't willing to take the measures to get it into compliance to not to get the SEC off their back. Then they sell it to Justin Sun and now it's okay? Well, it's not their problem anymore. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just curious how you can sell, sell a essentially an illegally operating exchange. Like if it's not abiding by the rules, one, that seems really weird. But also two, like Poloniex still exists. They have 400 coins 
on their exchange and they do $150 million in 24-hour trading, it's probably all fake. Probably all Justin Sun, but um, they, they do some small amount of trading volume per day. I mean, I'm just confused how, how this... <laughs> how this happens. And, and I, I'm kind of curious how, how USDC was able to so quickly just come back from that without any issues whatsoever. Like that's a huge loss. Well, there was still a couple of years until its market cap really started growing. I think USDC launches in 2018 and you don't really see the, the rise of stable coins to the degree we see now until the rise of DeFi, which was, you know, 2020. Um, so there was still a couple years more of maybe not wandering in the wilderness, but not the types of returns that Circle is seeing now. And then obviously, you also have to take interest rates into account, where it wasn't necessarily generating a lot of revenue until interest rates started going up, and they could start collecting that yield. There's this dynamic with these stable coins. And it was kind of Dante's comment about risk reduction to absurdity that kind of struck me with it, where stable coins more than just about any other multi-billion dollar financial fund I can think of seem to have a very different view of the financial system than most things like that. But they also seem to have an unusual amount of resiliency. Like uh, Circle broke the, or USDC broke the buck pretty hard when Silicon Valley initially ended up failing. And what was honestly almost most surprising about it is that they ended up eventually getting it back to peg involving their three separate plans to get there. But what's kind of interesting to me about that dynamic and about all the times Tether's been able to return to peg over its history is I'm always reminded of the reserve primary fund in 2008 when Lehman Brothers uh, couldn't pay their commercial paper, right? You saw this where that portion of the commercial paper represented less than 2% of the total assets of this multi-billion dollar money market fund. But as soon as that part was no longer, uh, was in default and the like expected value of the fund as a whole fell to like 98.5 cents or something on the dollar, they saw 80% of the total fund withdrawn in like the next 48 hours. And we've yet to see a run on any of the stable coins like that, despite there being points where they're, they're structured largely similar to these money market funds. And we've seen points like with Silicon Valley for uh, Circle or at a couple different points for Tether where they were, in many cases, less backed than the reserve primary fund at that point was. Do you have any thoughts on what dynamics lead stable coins to behave so differently and why are people so willing to tolerate it? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I really think it has to do with the stickiness of the product where people don't treat them like money market funds. I mean, if you look at how interest rates are today, if they were similar to money market funds or other similar instruments, everybody would be leaving because if you're holding USDC, unless you're certain customers on Coinbase, you're getting no yield on this and the companies are collecting all of it. So clearly people are using it for very different purposes and they need the product. My understanding of the difference between Tether and Circle or USDC, where their use cases come, is USDC is much more used in DeFi settings, so people using decentralized apps, where obviously it makes sense to be holding a stable fiat-like currency within DeFi apps without having to be constantly going back and forth between cryptocurrencies and fiat, which is slow and expensive. Whereas Tether is obviously a different use case. I mean, I think a lot of people would say, its main one is for money launderers or people who wouldn't have access to the banking system. I think there's also a more charitable explanation that it's for a lot of people who maybe are unbanked or want to have access to stable 
uh, US dollar like currencies, but don't actually have access to the US dollar. But clearly in both cases, people are willing to put up with all of the risk and the fact that they're not getting any yield because they found a use case for it. And again, that's, I think, the product market fit that both Tether and Circle have really been able to stumble upon. Circle was trying to do their their SPAC back in 2022-2021. They're trying to get the SPAC off the ground. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen, right? I mean, this is it's done. Is the concept now like we're not going to go public? We're going to keep this private and we're going to just keep retaining these fees that we're getting in these interest rates like that that we're able to acquire is that is that the, the business model now i mean the business model is that it currently exists is a great one as long as interest rates remain at this level and the market cap remains somewhat at this level they're pulling in a ton of revenue i, I think they're trying to use this opportunity to build out other types of products a lot of people have suggested that what makes the most sense for circle would be to move to like a banking like platform, which they already are, and start offering lending, which they've stopped doing. What they want to do is be able to offer more SaaS-like tools, like, you know, wallets as a platform is one of their services, or integrating with, like, Shopify, use USDC as a settlement layer. Uh, Sorry, you mentioned banking there, but they withdrew their uh, application for a bank charter, didn't they? They never applied. They've said that they're going Mm. to on numerous occasions. They never actually applied. You know, not to go too in the weeds, but... The way this process works is you would apply for a national banking charter with the OCC. A few crypto companies, including Paxos, have tried that. It seemed like under our old friend Brian Brooks, that might have been possible. Under the new regime, uh, they've rejected all these applications. So when I talked to Dante, the, the chief strategy officer at Circle, he basically said that it doesn't make any sense for them to apply because they'd be rejected at this point. But if they were to do that, what they say, they want to be a non-lending bank, which yeah, is basically I, what Custodia is also saying. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's a post on Circle's website from January 2021, written supposedly by Jeremy Allaire, where they say our journey to become a national digital currency bank. And they say they intend to become a full reserve national commercial bank operating under the supervision risk management requirements of the Federal Reserve, U.S. Treasury, OCC, and the FDIC. And now, as you mentioned, they seem to have pulled away from that. They've pulled away from their SPAC. We started to mention that they shifted from this consortium model and have changed their ownership more recently to give uh, Coinbase a direct equity ownership in their company. And so, yeah, it seems over the last 18 months or so since that SPAC really failed, they have shifted their goals in some regards, no longer going public, no longer immediately at least becoming a bank. They had to shut down their lending program, like you mentioned. And so now basically all they do is hold treasuries and issue tokens. Yeah. A giant money market fund where I guess they collect all the yield themselves. And (laughs) In the meantime, try to build this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they have about $24 billion now of assets under management. Yeah. Do you expect it to keep going down in market cap? I mean, as you said, they're losing against Tether, right? They're losing against the least regulated stablecoin. Or is there is there a real market fit here? And they're going to at least maintain some sort of semblance of multi-billions of dollars in their reserves. I think if I had an answer to that, I should be a short seller or a trader instead of a journalist. I mean, honestly, uh, though, but, but on, I, <laughs> on, honestly, though, Leo, like, uh, like, let's try to reflect on this. Even if it, even if yeah. the market cap went to zero, the suggestion isn't that it's going to affect the price. We're seeing this with B- BUSD. We're seeing this play out in real time. We've seen the uh, 
we've seen the market cap of this stablecoin plummet from something like what twenty five billion dollars to like three or something like that. It, it, it's a, a significant decline and it is going to zero i mean i think it's already been everyone's like this this they can't mint anymore all they can do is continue to redeem however the the it's not wavering it's staying at like 99 cents a dollar it's not a a big deal in terms of the market cap so like even knowing that like circle would lose the 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 any kind of presence with usdc which is a huge if and probably unlike i i don't know probably unlikely but like there's no way to trade that is there unless you own part of circle on the secondary markets which is a another chart that you show um in the article and it does show that while they were valued at i don't have the exact numbers i, I don't like have eight, eight eight billion was their biggest funding round in april 2022 i think so they're valued mm-hmm. at eight billion but they're actually trading for like five, six billion or whatever, like there's a pretty significant discrepancy between what they're valued at publicly and what they're valued at in secondary markets. Do you think this is a, th- a sign of things to come is my question to you. Not not saying this is financial advice, not saying like anyone is, is, is saying you can predict the future, but just based on your reporting, when you saw all of this, what are your thoughts? Like, what do you think happens here? Just to interject, sorry, before you answer, Leo, there was one line in the article that I think kind of points to this, which is um, part of USDC's decline is out of circles control. A continued rise in interest rates means that investors want to hold their deposits in yield bearing instruments rather than zero return stable coins, which is something we were kind of pointing at before. And like, I think to add on to Cass's point here, like the stablecoin issuers are in kind of this position where I don't think any of them want to pay any of the yield back to holders, one, because that's less yield for them, right? And that's the most important thing. But two, I think that with the, some of the regulatory questions and stuff that face these stablecoins, many of them see trying to pay any of that yield back as something that increases their own regulatory risk profile. Yeah, that's definitely true. Which is why it's so interesting to see Coinbase doing that because mm-hmm. I mean when you when you read SEC against BUSD like there's not there's not that much difference between how BUSD and USDC functions in terms of mm-hmm. giving yield back to investors at least on Coinbase not with Circle that's another question <laughs> for for Cass what I would say is I think what I was trying to get at with my article is that Jeremy had this very grand vision which is basically USDC would recreate the entire rails of global finance. (laughs) And I think what they found is that USDC does have limited use cases right now. They do have successful partnerships with Mercado Pago in Chile, with Shopify, with Visa, they're doing settlement stuff. What does successful mean? Like how much volume is going through these partnership programs? Is it significant or are we talking about a few handful of millions of dollars or something? Yeah, with Visa, it's definitely not large. It's only with three payment partners. I mean, they're they're basically positioning it as a pilot. Uh, I imagine with something like Mercado Pago or with um, Stellar, who they're also working with, like people do want to hold a fiat or a US dollar-like equivalent if you're in Latin America or Africa and you can have that hedge against inflation. But again, I think the broader point is there's this is still very far from remaking the entire rails of global finance. So while I, I don't think it's going to zero, uh, I can't like give a number where I think it's going to settle at. You know, being a twenty billion dollar stablecoin is obviously very different than being the new settlement layer for all of global finance. I think there's also an interesting point about interest rates, which is what Jeremy says is obviously right now with rates being higher, it means they're getting a higher yield. But when rates go lower, it does mean that traders will go back into making riskier bets. Maybe they'll be more happy to hold USDC, do more with decentralized apps. 
So their argument is that when interest rates go back down, their market cap will go back up. But I mean, isn't Jeremy undercut in that by the fact that Tether has continued growing over the last several months? Like even in the chart in your uh, article where you can see the total market cap of stablecoins going down, their competitor is going up. Yeah. And what they call, they, they refer to that as the flight from safety is their uh, turn of phrase <laughs> for that, which is basically in the wake of the Silicon Valley bank crisis or failure and you know so-called Operation Chokepoint 2.0, what happened is every single crypto trader who was abroad, who was afraid of the U.S. government, moved all their money from USDC to Tether, which, again, maybe there's a floor to that. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go from Tether. It basically means that anybody who's afraid of the U.S. government is going to move their money from USDC to Tether. And I think that what we're kind of getting at, one of the things I find really interesting about stablecoins in general is they function best when they are when they get closest to like plausibly, plausibly neutral in the industry, right? Because so many different industry participants need to rely on these structures, those participants want that thing to be like as close to neutral as possible. And this is why I think people have often been fascinated by some of the relationships with other firms that Tether has, because it seems to really cut against that kind of idea. And so one of the interesting dynamics in this story about Circle that caught for me was when you were talking about the deals for integrations on new blockchains and how mm. those were negotiated. And it seemed like that often there was a fee to circle associated with this, presumably meant to defray the cost for circle to stand up a team to run the nodes to be able to monitor that whatever. But one of the interesting dynamics in there that you suggested people had told you about was that people who got investments from Circle Ventures were sometimes getting deals that had as part of that deal when they were getting this investment. They were getting integrated on the blockchains and things like that. And I think this also kind of relates back to my point about paying yield is all these different activities. I think the less plausibly neutral you are, the more you're potentially attracting the interest of regulators. And so do you think that Circle or stablecoins more broadly are exposing themselves to certain risks by um, making deals that could be perceived as preferential to companies that they have specific investments or other relationships with? I don't know if that would necessarily draw scrutiny from the SEC. I mean, I think the main issue they've had is in some projects I spoke with, they sort of view Circle as a bully where USDC does still hold a huge amount of power in the industry. I mean, the fact that pretty much every, I think I did almost 30 or more interviews for this story and pretty much everyone wanted to talk on background. Like Circle does have an immense amount of influence and power in the industry still. Uh, and I do think this is the first time it's been reported, which is basically what happens when USDC is launched another blockchain. And again, I think that's a really interesting regulatory question um, because one of the reasons that I think that US, that Circle hasn't gone the DFS route is that DFS has basically only blessed Ethereum at this point. And one of USDC's big business models is to launch across different blockchains. And you would think that if their main priority is increasing overall adoption, they would try and launch on as many blockchains as possible, or you know maybe they would even pay the blockchain or there'd be no money changing hands. But in fact, the blockchains are paying them. And some people have even said doing a bidding process, Circle denied that, but that is at least a rumor that, that's going around that there has been a bidding process in the past to get USDC on blockchains. And again, I mean, I think that just reflects the influence they have. I, I do think that they are cautious from that regulatory question, which is you can look at Paxos and what happens when you make partnerships with anybody, obviously it can backfire. So I don't think they want to be on any blockchain and are being more careful there, but obviously it's not uniform in how they choose 
which blockchain which blockchain they want to partner with, and you know maybe the SEC will start to pay attention to that and what sort of business relationships they're having and why USDC is being launched and maybe even what revenue share agreements that they're creating with blockchains on that. This is not a question related to Circle necessarily, but I, I it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And um, Bennett sent, sent a tweet from someone neither of us is a huge fan of the other day um, that espoused as much. And, and I think that it's a classic... Um, situation of the worst person you know just made a good point, which is, I don't know about you, Leo, but when I got interested in cryptocurrency in general, it was like I, I was re learning about Bitcoin, learning about Ethereum, learning about kind of these decentralized cryptocurrencies that are, are have a floating value, right? We don't know how much it's going to be worth tomorrow. We don't know how much it's going to be worth in a month or a year or 10 years. It might go up. It might go down. Generally, it's gone up. But this was the use case, right? And part of that was that Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever this is, whether it's a group of people or a single individual, they were railing against the banks and the U.S. dollar kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, hegemony, whatever, like the, the, the power of the U.S. dollar in the global, global financial system. But now it seems like the killer use case for cryptocurrency is being a U.S. dollar derivative. I mean, is that... Is that right? Or is that like, how do you feel about that? Is that an accurate kind of description or, or am I going way too far here in, in that direction? I think there's a huge irony there. I will say my dad has, is one of the most supportive people of my uh, journalism career and has learned all about crypto, even though I don't think he cares that much about crypto. Uh, and he'll read my articles. And the first thing he said after this article was, isn't it ironic that like the US dollar backed cryptocurrency is one of the most popular ones out there? For both Tether and USDC. The most popular uh, for, for what it's worth, right? This is doing more volume yeah. than Bitcoin and Ethereum. And like if we combine Tether and USDC in terms of their volume, these are the pillars to having accurate like price discovery in the cryptocurrency economy. Like without them, who the fuck knows what this would look like? And it's, I, it's wild to reflect on that, you know? Yeah, I don't think that's talked about enough. And I mean, I think it's also a sort of a, a what if where... There was a period where maybe algorithmic stablecoins would be able to challenge simple fiat-backed stablecoins. And obviously, that's gone out the window because of some pretty spectacular collapses that <laughs> both of you have covered very extensively. But at this point, it's, it's basically what we're stuck with. And yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say more than it's ironic <laughs> that you have a US dollar-backed cryptocurrency or two of them that have basically emerged as the main use cases for cryptocurrency. And specifically, just to like put kind of like a nail in the coffin here of what of the statement is that like the the specific use case for Tether that they like to espouse is like banking the unbanked. Like wasn't that the whole point of Bitcoin? I, I'm like I'm sorry, but that I from what I get gathered when I first got interested in cryptocurrency was like Bitcoin is supposed to be this this alternative to using banks and and dollars using fiat currency. And now it's like, well, no, that's what, that's, that's what Tether's for. People in Argentina and, and Russia and places that are having trouble accessing US dollars or the price of their own fiat currency, they're going to use Tether, not Bitcoin, which is like, okay, I mean, when did that happen? Like, when did this transition happen from like, actually the most powerful and important cryptocurrencies are the ones that are cryptocurrencies in name only, essentially. And then the other thing is, this is the easiest one. If a bank or government wants to copy it, they can basically turn that on at any point. And I think it's still sort of hard to get a good answer from a crypto person, which is, 
well, you know, they hate CBDCs on instinct, I think. But, you know, why isn't a PayPal type token or even if JP Morgan decides to launch one in partnership with other banks where now anybody maybe globally could have more access to it? Why isn't that more advantageous than USDC? Like you're getting at there, these competitors can potentially start one up in a moment. And the other thing to remember with any of these centralized stablecoins is that they can similarly be shut down in a moment. Cass talked about how BUSD, a regulator, told them to stop minting, and we've seen the expected redeem-only pattern since then. But basically, all these stablecoins, USDC, Tether, Paxos, also have um, blacklists or blacklists in their code, where they could, in theory, freeze every single Tether or every single USDC currently in circulation if they had to. And then if you still wanted to redeem for people who are out there, whatever, you make them come in and sign using the address, right? And demonstrate that offline or online, but without the transaction or something, and then do the redemptions. And so I think this is kind of what I was trying to get at when I was blathering on about plausible neutrality and stuff before, is that because these stablecoins are potentially so incredibly powerful, where there are scenarios where USDC and Circle, under certain types of pressure, could end up taking out massive swaths of DeFi in like a single transaction, they have such an under-discussed, pivotal place in the ecosystem. And I think that like that's kind of what is always striking to me when I'm, whenever I have to engage with stablecoins, which is unfortunately often because of my neuroses. Um, you end up in these situations where you're confronted, like Cass is talking about, where these have subsumed the previous use cases for cryptocurrencies in many ways and have replaced them even in discourse about many of these issues. And they are bad at it. Like there are scenarios where every single unbanked person currently relying on Tether has those frozen tomorrow. Right. And that's not a thing you ever hear those companies or those individuals talk about. Although I do think in the case of both Tether and Circle, they're much less ideological than any of the early crypto products. Like, I don't think Circle sure. is necessarily ideologically a crypto company in the way that, you know, early Bitcoin developers were. Though, I think Jeremy's Tether, thing is he wants to create Tether. Tether does I mean, own, I don't know. like Plan B and stuff, right? Like, they own Bitcoin yeah. themed conferences. They also are but now even taking so, the their early profits days of, and buying Bitcoin with their profits as well. So, yeah. But is that for ideological reasons or is that for. Yes, I mean, that's what I that's what I believe it's to it's the same as like uh, to me it's the same as Do Kwan being like I'm gonna buy a bunch of Bitcoin now and that was like okay see now I can get these people who support Bitcoin to support me because I'm a good guy I'm using my my Ponzi scheme to buy Bitcoin and like isn't that great for Bitcoin don't you guys support me doing this where I think like I'm not suggesting Tether is a Ponzi scheme it's not but I am suggesting that they're doing it to garner support for what they're doing, which is just to be a USD derivative. Like they're, they're not doing anything spectacular. They're not doing anything world changing really. And neither is USDC. Like, as you said, the goal is to change the entire financial system. You're just building a US dollar derivative. You're not changing anything. Sorry, I just want to interject and say, I think that there is more of an ideological drive among the Tether executives. Um, Juan Carlo Davisini has like uh, writings on what he thought about Bitcoin that predate even his involvement in Bitfinex. Uh, Craig Sellers, when he uh, initially came up with Tether, was involved with that, had a whole bunch of stuff um, about like Mastercoin and stuff and his philosophical dedication to Bitcoin. Palo Arduino only eats meat, so he's clearly a Bitcoiner. <laughs> um, 
So I think that some of them at least pay a lot of lip service to the Bitcoin ideology and the Bitcoin mentality. Shout out to Zeke Fox's new book. I really just had one last question, which is you mentioned in your article that Circle has 900 employees, which by my reckoning is about 20 times their largest competitor, which is several times their size. So uh, what are they all doing? This is a very good question. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> I'm, I'm being glib, obviously. I don't expect you to account compliance. for 900 people. I would imagine do. they're doing compliance. <clears throat> yeah. Circle guess, has a very... the difference, isn't it? <laughs> I will I... say, you know, I, I talk with a lot of Circle folks all the time. I, I do think they have a great team. They have a very large policy team which is interestingly one of the places where they did see cuts in the layoffs. But I think one of their main functions is really trying to pass regulation in the US, which is one of the main paths forward for them as a company. They do a lot of marketing. They have a big presence around the world. And to Cass's earlier point about, you know, what does the future of the company look like? Is it going to zero? Or is it going back up? I think they're really trying to compete with Tether abroad now. And you'll see Jeremy and Dante and other head figures on the road a lot where they're really trying to convince merchants or fintech companies or platforms like that to start using USDC. And I think that's really one of the futures. You know, whether they can compete with Tether or not is obviously a question. I don't see an international market for a heavily regulated stablecoin being something that's going to happen anytime soon. But you never know. It's just Tether is open to a lot more countries automatically, right? Like just by simply not being a US-based company and doing things in a much shadier way... They can kind of work with whoever the fuck they want, whereas um, USDC can't do that. The trick is just to never pick up your cell phone when the country code is plus one and never go to a country with an extradition treaty and you can run <laughs> any size funds you want. That pretty much covers most of this. Is there anything you want to add before we, we sign off here, Leo, in terms of like the point of the article, the discussion of these stable coins? I don't know what you expect, anything. Yeah, I mean, I think like both of you guys, what continues to fascinate me about cryptocurrency is that question, you know, what's the use case of cryptocurrency beyond speculation and money laundering? And I do think stable coins in a lot of way, in a lot of ways, pose the most the the bridge with the most potential between the worlds of TradFi and cryptocurrency, or something that, while we may not know we're interacting with it every day, could really serve on the back end of platforms or apps that we use every day. Um, and that's really why I was interested in this article. Uh, and I think my takeaway from it is you know, we're still really far away from that. And obviously, stable coins are the number one regulatory question in the US. And even there, we're very far away from it. So I think being able to explore that question through this company circle, which says it's going to be us, we're going to be the ones that will bridge these two worlds and finally bring crypto into regulation. And the reality of how far away they are from that is, is pr pretty illustrative of, I think, the current moment in cryptocurrency. Awesome. Well, I think that's going to do it. That's our discussion of yet another stablecoin on yet another episode. <laughs> I don't I don't do this usually, but if you've enjoyed this, please uh, leave a review or a like for us. We've kind of lagged on that for the past several months, so no one does it. So I'm going to go ahead and request that you do that. And then meanwhile, you might have seen my cat burrito. I think she's going to be taking over <laughs> CEO duties uh, for Cascoin from here on out. So please stop adding me to try to get your money back for Cascoin, okay? I can't help you now. <laughs>